0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. How's everybody? Good Christmas so far? I'd love to have a coffee with each of you and just ask, what does it mean? that it was a good Christmas, probably we have different kinds of answers, but I hope that for us, uh, how's everybody, good Christmas so far, I'd love to have a coffee with each of you and just ask what does it mean that it was a good Christmas, probably we have different kinds of answers, but I hope that for us, um, One of the essential parts of Christmas will be a personal renewal of our appreciation for who Jesus Christ has been to us. He is the faithful one when the rest of the world has not been very faithful to us, when we have not even been faithful to ourselves. He is the faithful one. He is the one who is the right answer, even to all the wrong questions in our lives, isn't he? Well, I want to preach this morning the second part of a two-part Christmas series, that was entitled, The Humble King. And that's the idea, is that this God we worship in the person of Jesus Christ is this strange pairing of two things that normally shouldn't go together. That he is the king of everything, but he's also humble. And last Sunday, uh, we looked at the fact that he is humble. This Sunday, I want to look at the fact that he is king. And there's a couple ways I could go with talking about Jesus as king. One is... We can just kind of berate you and say, hey, you have a king, you should obey him, you should get your act together, you should follow his way. And we could do that, I suppose, and there wouldn't be anything technically wrong with saying that. But it wouldn't answer the question, why would I follow this king? Why would I acknowledge him, yield to him, submit everything to him? What makes him a worthy king? And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the kind of king that we have. The text I want to draw from this morning is Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> and the times that the, during which the prophet Isaiah spoke for God were some of the darkest times in the nation of Israel. It's important when people are going through hard times that God from time to time will raise up a voice that will bring comfort and hope to the people. And that's what Isaiah was. That was his entire mission. The country of Is- the nation of Israel had been divided for a couple centuries at this point by civil war. Um, the king that they had, King Ahaz, was just the most godless king you could imagine. He was such a bad king that when he died, he was about the only king who was not buried in the place with all the other kings of Israel. But they said he was buried somewhere else because he had sinned so greatly against God that even his dead, rotting body could not be laid to rest with the other kings of the nation. So you know that when your country has poor leadership, people groan. When your company, when your family has poor leadership, when your church has poor leadership, when the people who have authority and can make decisions that affect you are not the right people, it's a pretty bad situation. Now, in a democracy, all we got to do is wait four years and boot that person out and get the next guy in. who will probably do just about as as little as the last guy did. You know, I'm I'm cynical when it comes to politics. I'm sorry. But when you have a monarchy where the king will be king until he dies and then probably his bratty kid will become the next king over you, when that kind of system is there, the people's hearts just groan because there's no hope in sight. It's never going to get any better. On top of all of that, the Assyrian Empire was rising all throughout this region. And the Assyrians were some of the meanest, cruelest, nastiest empire builders this world has ever known. They were famous for their brutality, and every time they overtook another nation, they did not treat them gently or kindly. They broke their spirit. They physically maimed them, mutilated them, just to say, we have dominated you. You will never rise again. Assyria reigns forever. That was the kind of empire that was rising on the horizon at the same time that they have a terrible, godless, weak king. And so you can imagine that as you're reading the book of Isaiah, by the time you get to the end of chapter 8, the picture is really, really dark. Look at the words found at the end of chapter 8. As Isaiah foretells the condition of the people now and how it will be as things get worse. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. That's pretty bleak, but I know that for for some of us, even in this room, those words might describe your life now. They probably have described your life at some point. You couldn't see daylight. There was really nothing that gave you hope. You really looked at the situation and said, I can't imagine it getting any worse than this. You know it's bad when you think maybe death wouldn't be so bad because living is pretty bad right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would bet that a fair number of us have touched a time like that in our lives. And so when you get to chapter 8, it's not exactly a feel-good book so far, but that's why as chapter 9 begins... The first word is so important, so powerful. Look at how this chapter begins. Isaiah, and that should say chapter 9, verse 1. I'm sorry, I cut and pasted from last week. The first word of that chapter is nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. That word nevertheless is a very powerful word. It's a game-changing word. Because it has the power to completely transform the direction of a story, doesn't it? It's a word that when you use it, reverses everything that just came before. It's a word powerful enough to turn good news into bad news. Isn't? It? Let me give you an example. You know, Dave, you're a wonderful man. You've made all the right moves. You're a good guy. You've been nothing but decent to me. Nevertheless, <laughs> you just gave me all this good news. nevertheless. I can't marry you. Dang it. It was all sounding so good until the word nevertheless, a powerful word that can change the whole story. It can also turn bad news into good news. Dave, that was one of the worst papers I have ever read in my entire 30 years of teaching. Nevertheless, I'm going to let you try it a second time, I'm going to give you a redo. Mike, that was the worst interview I have ever, ever had with any job candidate. Nevertheless, you're hired. Do you see the power of the word nevertheless? It says we've just starkly looked at how bad it is. I've, I haven't held anything bad from you. This is the truth about you. How many of you have the guts to hear the full truth about you? Not from one of us. What right do we have to tell you what you're like? But how many of us have the guts to let God, who doesn't lie, who knows everything, tell the full truth about us? Would you want to hear that? And you here's God cutting through all the BS saying, this is the full truth of you and your story. And anybody who hears that won't be cheering. I can promise you that. I know that's true because even those people say, yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing the full truth about me, would not want that story read publicly, would they? The full story of me has a lot of shame and darkness, a lot of places I just as soon keep hidden, and I'd rather you just believe the public version of me. I'm a family man, I'm a pastor of a church, I'm this and that. That's all I want you to really know about me. I don't want you to know anything else. And yet what God says is, I have seen the full truth. And then he changes the entire tenor of the story with this powerful word, nevertheless. I think no word better captures the spirit and essence of the gospel and what Christmas represents than that word, nevertheless. It's a word that speaks to decision, I have seen this situation, the stark truth, but I have made a decision. In spite of all of this, I've made a decision to benefit you, to completely ignore all of this and give you a different story to finish. That is a powerful word, a powerful idea. I think it so well summarizes the heart of what makes Christmas such great news for us, such a happy thing. God made a decision in spite of the darkness in which we rightfully and deservedly lived, he made a decision that changed our story and completely transformed it from a story of gloom where the best I could hope for was to have a little money, have a little fun, and die in my sleep. That's my dream, my great goal. That's all we could hope for in the best-case scenario. And the truth was the reality was pretty worse than that, right? And God stepped in, And he said to each of us, and if we acknowledge that we participate in this, he said this powerful word, nevertheless, you have a future. There's hope for you. In fact, that decision that God made in sending Jesus Christ to the earth was such a powerful and defining event in human history, it literally bisected the way we measure time. Throughout the Western world, and now pretty much throughout the entire world, we, mark, we know that this is the year 2011 A.D., the year of our Lord, because everything before Jesus was something else. His arrival bisected human history. It is the greatest decision, the greatest event that has ever taken place. As you continue reading Isaiah chapter 9, you sense this crescendo. Any musicians here? Do you know what a crescendo is? It's when the intensity, the volume, even the pace of the music kind of boom 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 it's, it's building up. It's building up and you feel it. There's this mounting tension of expectation because the piece is kind of traveling up the hill. And as you read the rest of chapter 9, you begin to sense this rising hope in the midst of all of this darkness. And some of you know what that feels like to be in such a hopeless place. And then you find a person, a friend, a word, a book, a church, a community, something that as you latch onto it, something in your heart stirs and says, hey, maybe it's not going to be so hopeless after all. And the more you dig into it, the more you start to feel like maybe I'm going to make it. I'm going to see daylight at the end of this dark tunnel. And the hope... You dare to hope a little more. And it's scary to start hoping more because the more you hope, the more you're going to be shattered when you're disappointed. And yet you dare it anyway because someone or something has started to give you a rising hope. And that's the story of the rest of this chapter. When you look at it, in chapter in, in verses 1 through 2, there's this idea that darkness will be replaced by light. And if you guys have seasonal affective disorder? Doesn't it stink that at 5.30 p.m., it's dark outside. I just, I, I have such a hard time with that. It's so depressing for me to look outside at 5.30 and it's just pitch black. It stinks that when you get up, the rare occasion I get up in the morning to walk the dogs, I need a flashlight. It just, I hate the lack of light and I can't wait for spring for the one reason. Now, I don't care about the warm weather. You know, I love the cold. But the light thing just gets to me. And, and so it's a universal symbol everyone understands. That whatever we call darkness is going to be pushed away by a rising light. Verse 3 says that sorrow will be replaced by joy. That's good news, isn't it? Sorrow, and that's a pretty powerful word. It's not just, oh man, I actually wanted that game, not this game for Christmas. That's not sorrow. That's irritation. That's disappointment. Sorrow is something deep in the gut. And he says, that's sorrow is going to give way to joy, especially in those places you never expected it was going to be possible. It says that bondage will be replaced by freedom. The places where I feel unable to move, to flee or escape, those things are going to be broken and I will find myself finally free. In fact, in that last verse, verse 5, it says that the symbols of my old and former bondage will be burned in the fire. Nobody likes war. We might like war-based video games, but the truth is, anybody who's ever seen or touched or studied or lived through war knows that it is that most hateful thing. And when war ceases and peace comes upon the land, everyone, even the soldiers and generals, are truly happy. Nobody likes war. And it says that these weapons are going to be burned, these boots Everything, the blood-filled, blood-soaked uniforms, all are going to be burned in the fire. This is a rising hope. And the people who have just heard Isaiah speak the truth all the way through the first eight chapters are now beginning to think, well, maybe it's not going to be so bad forever. So who's responsible? Because as you kind of crescendo, as you build up, you want a payoff. You don't want a roller coaster that just keeps going and it never stops. You want to go over the hill. You want to feel something. Who is responsible for that turn? Who's going to make all this happen? Push away the dark and bring in the light. And, the, and the, the breathtaking and unexpected answer to that question is that it's going to be a child who is born. That One day, a baby would be born. And keep in mind that Isaiah is speaking these things under the influence of God's Holy Spirit about 720 years before Jesus is born. But with crystal clarity, he sees the birth of the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And he says, there's going to come a day when a child will be born who will save us all and then take his rightful place on the throne. Despite all your disillusionment with everything that has happened until then, when this baby arrives, he will change everything. And it says the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he will not just save us. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53, was all about how Jesus would bear terrible pain for our sake. But that's not the whole of his story. The government shall also be on his shoulders, meaning he will reign as the rightful king over all of our lives. It was common in the ancient world that when a king took the throne, he would be given a throne name. Not quite a nickname, but it would be a name that we hoped would define his reign over the people. So they would give, you know, so they would give a, a person like, like an ancient king named Sargon. The name Sargon meant the king is legitimate. I don't think he was given that name by his mom and dad when he was born. Yeah, hey, your name's going to be the king. It's a throne name. It's a, a name given to him to define the legitimacy of his administration. And so as Jesus, in the prophet Isaiah's mind, is being enthroned over all of his people, he's given some very important throne names. And I'm going to use the short time I have remaining. Don't groan, don't worry, it's going to to fly through. I want to touch on these names because they will help us understand what kind of king we actually have in Jesus Christ. He's given four throne names that are so important. The first throne name is Wonderful Counselor. When you hear the word counselor, what do you think of? You think of Vicky Eaton, John Warden. You think of somebody who's a good listener, very mild-mannered, not judgmental, not overly guiding, but they're just listening to say, hey, listen, I- I'm here for you. And then after hearing, they give you very good personal advice. I think that is great. We need counselors. But when Jesus Christ is called Wonderful Counselor, do not hear, hey, Jesus is the guy who will tell you whether you should wear the red sweater or the blue sweater today to church. He's not the one who will tell you whether you should work for this store or that store. We're not talking about something as mundane as simple advice. The word counselor in Hebrew points to something we call wisdom. Wisdom is a way of looking at reality that makes sense, a worldview. I'm so indebted to Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, for some of the insights I got from listening to his sermon on these two words, Wonderful Counselor. Let me just share the highlights of what he said. He said that every human being, and you could probably fight with me a little on this, okay? A lot of people disagree with this. I think he's totally right. He says every human being needs three things at the end of their lives. We need to be able to face death with peace. We need to face our own failures and past, and we need to be able to forgive other people and move on from the pains that they've caused us. Whatever else you get out of life, if you don't get those three things, you will never, ever feel right. You will never feel fully human. You won't be whole. You won't have peace. We all need these things. Now, if you're young, you're probably thinking, face death with peace. You may not think you need that now, but a day is coming when you realize you will. I've sat at so many hospital beds with people who are terminal, and I'll tell you, there will come a day for every one of us where this idea of facing death will be absolutely important. And whether you face it with peace or with anger is going to make a huge difference. And what will make that difference is whether you found an answer, an ability to face it or not. Each one of us, admittedly, has issues in our own our our own morality. We are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. How do you deal with your imperfection? With your own brokenness, with the fact that you're so full of garbage sometimes, aren't you? Do you ever open your mouth and go, I can't even stand the sound of my own voice right now? I am so full of garbage. Around January is the time we especially get sick of ourselves and we try so hard not to get cynical. But this is the year I'm going to seriously get in shape and this is the year I'm going to read again. And as you're saying, you're like, I've heard those words before. And you're struggling. I'm not trying to deflate you in your resolutions. I'm trying to say, if you're honest about it, you're sick of even yourself. You know that you lie just as much as you tell the truth. And if you don't realize it, ask the people closest to you. They'll tell you, you're kind of full of garbage, man. Sometimes you talk and it's like, yeah, I don't know how you believe yourself. Is it just me? Some of you are like that, right? And so you know there's got to be some way to deal with that. And then the ability to actually forgive people. I know you don't want to forgive. You want to punish You want to grind their necks under your boot and make them pay. I know that's what your flesh wants, but everybody who's ever gotten to that place, that moment, the Libyans who, after years of oppression, mutilated the corpse of Muammar Gaddafi, they rejoiced in the streets, but then what? You killed the boogeyman. Now what? His body's in pieces all over the streets. And then what? Did it change everything? Did it erase all the pain? Did it make you freer, better? Having a lot of trouble still. I know it's better than oppression, but revenge, everyone who's ever exercised it has has believed it's not the answer. We need some ability to actually move forward with our lives, to deal with injustice, not just to forget it, not just to deafen it, drown it, and other things, but to actually deal with it, to cancel it out. And Jesus Christ despite the fact that his whole life ran counter to everything we think is logical, faced all three of those things. He faced death. He faced our brokenness and sin. He faced injustice. And in all of those things, he remained victorious at the end of his life. In Jesus Christ, we find real wisdom that fills us with wonder. Nothing about his life made logical sense. He was born under a shadow of controversy to a teenage woman in a backwater town, in a backwater country that wasn't even the main force in the world back then. All his life, he studiously avoided all the power structures that existed in his culture. He never once tried to promote himself. He never once tried to defend or manage his reputation. He made none of the right moves. If he were running for office, he'd lose a thousand times over today because he wasn't playing the game right. And when he opened his mouth to speak, he said crazy stuff like, when the worst guy in town smacks you in the face, give him the other cheek in case he's not done. He said, if you really want to be great, become everyone's slave. You want to be really rich, give it all away. He said crazy stuff. He said, you you want real power, die to yourself. Yield, submit, don't defend yourself. Be silent before your slaughterers. Nothing he said made sense. He should have been wiped from memory, erased from human history as the biggest idiot that ever opened his mouth in the public square. And yet it is his name that is known by three-fourths of the world's population 2,000 years after he lived and died. It is his name and his body of teaching upon which civilizations have been built. Entire lives centered around him. He didn't do anything by the world's way of might and right and power, and yet his wisdom is astounding in its effectiveness. And that's really what we celebrate in Christ, is not that he's the smartest of all the smart guys, but he's a radical, he's a revolutionary. Unlike our leaders today who simply try to hold office, try to get elected, try to win the game, he wasn't playing it. He was, refreshingly, an actual leader. A real revolutionary, a radical who bypassed the system and brought victory for all of us. Maybe I'm reading too much Time Magazine election coverage, but when I look at the leaders that we have today and I look at Jesus, he makes foolish the wisdom of the world. He is a wonderful counselor in that regard. He's also given another name, Mighty God. Mighty God. Do you know what that name means? The word mighty is the word that the e- Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, used to describe a hero or a champion. Somebody who, representing them, fought for them and won. Now, we don't really have that kind of an idea in our culture. The closest we might come to is, do you know when sometimes like, we're down by a couple points and then Julius Peppers breaks through the offensive line and he just mauls the quarterback? He just, and when Julius Peppers hits the quarterback, it's never like, eh, you know, you're down. It's like, walk, walk, and he just, it's, it's so decisive, and everybody just gets up and they cheer. Everyone, except those who don't like the Bears. Everyone gets up, and there's this feeling, this upsurge of pride, of identification, and you're happy, and you're so proud, you're so relieved because he's our guy. And he just moved the game forward for us. It's that feeling, just a little bit, that gives you a hint as to what the the Hebrews felt when they heard this throne name, Mighty God. It's this idea that we have somebody who's fighting for us. One of the worst things in life is to be stuck in a bad situation and realize you're invisible. Nobody sees you. Nobody actually cares. There's nobody who will help you. It's a feeling that a lot of people have. Do I even matter? Can anyone fully understand what it's like to be stuck in my life right now? And when nobody will pause to acknowledge you, to say, listen, I don't want to just say, hey, I hope things go better. I'm praying for you, and they walk on. But once in a while, you meet somebody who won't do that. They'll actually pause and go, oh, man, that really troubles me. I can't move on with my day after hearing what you just shared. I need to pause, and I need to start making your burden my burden. My burden. Have you ever met someone like that in your life? Somebody who didn't just pat your hand and say, there, there, listen, tomorrow will be better than today. Chin up, kid. That's easy to say, but once in a while you'll meet someone who will actually make your problem their problem. They won't just say nice words. They will share your heartache. They will actually hurt so that they can make your life better. And the idea here is that we have a champion who does that for us. He did not leave us abandoned to a a dark and blemished future. He actually stepped in and fought the fight for us. He's our hero, a champion, somebody who took our cause and fought for us. I know a lot of you think that you have to fight all of your own battles. You can't trust anyone else. You can't depend on anyone else. And so you fight hard to create security for yourself and the people you love. Because in the end, you fight it hard even to really trust God. But this throne name given to Jesus, the reason he is such a worthy king, is that when he looks at you, he doesn't feel dispassionate about you. He actually loves you. He will actually make your fight his fight. He's already done it. And if you cry to him, if you lean on him, he will continue to fight for you. I'm not just saying this out of theory. These aren't good preacherly words that I was trained in seminary to give. I'm telling you that this is my personal story too. And I know for a lot of you, it's your story. It changes everything when you have someone who fights for you. I wonder if that's the reason so many people out of superstition come to the pastors and say, "Uh, Can you pray for me? I'm like, yeah, I could pray for you, but it's the same really as you praying for you. You know that, right? It's not like I have some kind of claw of power. Come over here. Let me just touch you with the claw of pastoral power. I don't have anything you don't have. But maybe the reason people come to the pastors is because they see something that says, you actually look like you believe that there's a God on the other end of that phone. When you pick up, somebody answers. I don't, I'm having a hard time believing that right now. And that's okay. If that's where your struggle is, come to us. Through our certainty, maybe you will grow more certain. But I want you to know this. Every time you pick up that phone, someone's answering on the other end. You may not feel it, but you are not living a powerless life. You're not a cork bobbing on the ocean, tossed by every wave. There is someone you call to who has already championed your cause. Here's another Throne name given to Jesus. Everlasting Father. Here's a weird one. How is the child supposed to be our father? In what sense is Jesus the Son also an everlasting father to us? This speaks mainly to the kind of paternal care which Jesus gives to his people as their king. From the time that one person began to rule other people, since the beginning of human history, there have always been leaders. And the sad truth about the human history of leadership is that most leaders use their people to serve themselves. Isn't that the way it's pretty much gone most of the time? Think of the company you work for. Do you think... That if the CEO of your company had to make a choice between your job, your children's food, your livelihood, and the bottom line for the company, they would fight for you? (laughs) Not a chance, buddy. You're gone. I know they feel bad about it. It's not like they're cruel. And I don't look at corporations like the great Satan. But I know that our leaders pretty much serve themselves. Not every single one of them. But the vast majority of human history would argue that our rulers, and we included when we become leaders, it's so hard not to fall into this trap of seeing the people we lead as tools, assets for our own chess game. Think of the way that so often generals manipulate the lives of soldiers. The way politicians talk about citizens, voters, taxpayers. The way kings have for centuries played games with the lives of their subjects. And so when we hear that Jesus Christ as king is to us an everlasting father, those are words of great comfort. That the way in which he will rule over us is the way a good father would. And what is it that we need fathers to do for us, guys? You know because you've longed for this, and you, many of us have never really gotten it from our earthly fathers, have we? We need our fathers to protect us, to make us feel safe. We need our fathers to provide for us, to let us know that tomorrow something is is going to be on the table. We need our fathers to support us. Not to control us, but to tell us there's a direction, a plan for your life. I'm behind you. I've got your back. To encourage us, to affirm us, to speak life into us, to teach us and guide us. I love when I see a guy working with his hands and tinkering with cars and I say, how'd you learn that? I love when the answer is my dad taught me how to do this. I just love that idea that from our fathers, we are given things we desperately need for life. We're equipped. We desperately need that from our dads, but the truth is a lot of people in this church have faced their adulthood and many men have even become fathers themselves without ever really receiving from their earthly father any of these things in strong measure. I remember uh, attending a conference where these young pastors were gathered and this one guy in particular, I just, I just felt so like, he was a very irritating young man, Okay. Very proud, very arrogant, very cocksure, you know. He's just one of those guys that instinctively, as another man, I just wanted to kind of, you know, bring him down to size a little bit. Hey, punk, seriously, chill out. That's how I felt when I first met him. But over the several days of the conference, something in my heart began to melt. I just, I wanted to bless him. I couldn't suppress this. I wanted, so I began to speak words that I could see in him were true. Words of encouragement, of affirmation. Hey, you know what I see in you? I see a natural-born leader. I can tell you, you don't struggle with self-esteem. There's a surety, a confidence about you. And I know underneath all that other stuff, there's somebody who really wants to make a difference. This guy started to, I mean, literally fell down and began to weep. And I couldn't understand what was happening. I've complimented lots of people. I've encouraged lots of people. I've never had a response like that. And he said, you know what? You are the first older man ever in my life to say anything positive to me. To ever say you see anything good in me. I've never had anyone actually say that to me. And I never expected to hear it from an older man, especially an older Korean man. But you said it. And it was like water had been poured onto dry mud, just baked earth, and he soaked it up. I thought, that's what we need from our fathers. But the truth is, for some of us, that train has already left the station. Maybe your father's already passed and you can't get him back to do it right. Maybe your father's already so set in his ways, he's not going to give you much more than he's already given you. This is as good as it's going to get from him. So the question is, who will take care of you? Who will protect you? Who will guide you? Who will pour into you? Who will tell you what they see is good in you? In whose image will you grow up? Do you have someone who you call father, that you could legitimately, genuinely value, respect. You're proud to bear his name. Some of us have that. Praise God for that. But for those of you who don't, do you understand the hope and comfort that comes in Jesus being called everlasting father? And I have a great dad. I just spent the weekend with him. And I'm reminded again, what an awesome dad I have. But even so, when I think about who I am today, Far more credit goes to Jesus Christ than to my father. And I'm not telling you that because it's the right answer. I'm telling you that because it's my testimony. When I think about who I am, I got to tell you so much of what's good in me came from Jesus. All the rest is all me. I take full credit for the junk. But if you've ever been blessed by me, if there's ever been anything good that I've done, it's because Jesus Christ has given me the best of what makes him good. He's been pouring into me every chance that I receive it, and I know that that's the story for many of you. He is our everlasting Father, and let me give you this last one, this last throne name. <clears throat> he is the Prince of Peace. People at Harvest who've been here a while, you know that every time you hear the word peace, you are also meant to hear the Hebrew word what? Shalom. Shalom. I hope I've brainwashed enough about that. And that's because the, the English word for peace and the American idea of peace is so weak. It doesn't fully do justice to the idea of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is not just peace. It's, I guess it could be peace, but you've got to attach it to a picture. And remember once before I showed you the picture of somebody, a mother, just holding a baby, sleeping. Do you know that picture? And if you've ever been that person holding a baby, whether it's yours or it's not yours, but a baby while it's fidgeting all of a sudden nestles into your arm and then just falls asleep and you hear it's measured breathing and you look at that perfect unblemished skin and that, those cheeks and you just go, something is just very right about this moment right here. Something feels so, how, how would you describe it? It's like this, this is how... It should always feel. This is how it should be. Children should not be afraid for their lives. They shouldn't be abandoned. We shouldn't feel punished by the burden of parents. But somehow, holding that baby, and do you know that feeling? Do you remember the feeling when you first fell in love with someone? Maybe it's not even the person you are married to. Maybe first time you ever noticed you felt something called love, and then the other person goes, Hey! That's how I feel about you. And you <laughs> awesome. And you were you just you were jumping everywhere. You, everything was so good. You you wanted to watch romantic comedies. You, you wanted to listen to 93.9 FM and Delilah's dedications of love songs at night. I wish she'd change her name. Something was different. And as you thought about it, you're like, How can this be? I can't control another person's affection, and yet the person for whom my heart has been smitten is smitten for me. And all is well in the universe today, because that's true. It's that feeling that begins to give you just the surface of what this word shalom means. A peace that cannot be described through intellectual understanding. It is a peace where your heart in its rawest lizard brained form can say to you, it is well. It is well. Do you know that peace? I can promise you something. Maybe you don't know it right now, but there's no way you will ever make your way to that peace apart from Jesus Christ. You won't get there through counseling. You won't get there through a weekend vacation, the purchase of new things, new experiences, a good laugh, none of those things will get you to the place you need to really be. Shalom, peace, only comes through Jesus Christ. And that's why for some of you, you cannot afford to slow down, can you? If the music gets turned off, if you stop having plans for the weekend, you know those those people, you, you know someone like this? If they don't have special plans for the weekend, they're like a caged animal. They're like... Let's, Honey, let's go somewhere. Let's do something. I I hate this. There's nothing to be excited about. Why are they so restless? Because if they ever stop, they will realize that all is not well. That underneath the laughter and the fun and the plans and the adrenaline, something is still missing in my life. It's like that Christmas time where everybody's so out of control, generous, and you're out shopping. And even as you're giving and getting, and you're just so happy, you know that there's this weird, sick feeling in the pit of your stomach because the credit card bills are coming. And for all the, the wonderful lights and presents, it can't erase the reality that, you know, this family that is laughing and hugging each other right now, all is not well in paradise. That underneath this happy exterior is a family with some real trouble. And when the laughter fades, we still have to deal with that stuff. It's still right there. Who is the prince of peace? I'm not talking about just feeling okay today. I'm talking about peace. Who is the one who brings that to your life? Because I promise you this, you will not get there apart from him. There is no hope for this. You can run fast, and some of you are running very fast in the opposite direction. He loves you. He's after you. I pray to God that he will catch you one day. Because the peace you're looking for will not be found out there. And I I fully invite you to search to your heart's content. But I want you to know something about this Jesus. He's patient. He loves you more than you can imagine. He's after you. He wants to catch you, and to be caught by him is the greatest gift. As I wrap up, I want you to look at the last sentence of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We sang a song today, He is Jealous for Me. That word zeal in Hebrew could very easily be translated jealous. It is a word which speaks Intense emotional engagement with something. This idea of Jesus wanting to be king, wanting to redeem, and then to rule over your life, direct you, guide you, provide for you, protect you. This agenda that Jesus has of being all in all for your life is not some dispassionate agenda for Him. He's not phoning it in from Washington. He's not trusting this to subordinates. He is passionately invested in your life story. He is chasing hard after you. That is why there are some people he has deposited in your life who will not shut up about him. Who will be relentless in their commitment to pray for you to keep the bridge open between you and him because they know something you still don't know yet, which is that your real life will begin at his feet. Don't just take my word for it. Do whatever you've got to do to try everything else. But I want you to know that he is zealous in coming after you. He loves you more than you can imagine. He wants to be king in your life. And if you yield to him, you will find that he is a very good king. I have never met anyone, and I really mean this, they might exist. I've never met anyone who fully yielded themselves to Jesus as king, who is sorry they'd done it. I've seen people experience pain after that decision, but Jesus has been there in that pain all along. Christianity is not this, coming to church on Sunday and enduring a sermon. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And my invitation to you is don't accept religion. Go straight for the source. Go to Jesus Christ. Make this about him. Know him. Let him lead you and see what happens in your life. It will make all the difference in the world. And I'll just say this. It's not like we have a 20,000-member church where I look out and all I see is stage lights blinding me. I look at it and I see people I love, I care about. I know many of your stories. And the truth is, as I look at this room, there are some faces that just my heart is just surging forward. God, please show them more of you. Lord Jesus, grab hold of them so that they will see that this is not a burden. It is the greatest gift a human being can receive is to fall under the kingship of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I'm praying that for you right now in my heart. I know many others who love you are praying the same thing. Yield to him. Don't fight him. You won't be sorry. I want to invite you to bow with me and pray. When we talk about Jesus as king, I want you to think about how different he is from our leaders today. Jesus doesn't play games, he's not trying to win elections, he's not trying to curry favor. He knows what works, and it's radical. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. I've seen this happen again and again. People try his way just once after all the years of trying it the other way because they will come to a point where they're forced to acknowledge the other way wasn't really working as well as I pretended. So they try Jesus' way. Something profound begins to happen. This is our king, wonderful counselor, eye-opening, revolutionary truth. Human kings use their people to fight their wars, but our king fights for us. Do you have a defender? Do you have someone who's taken up your cause? Someone who protects you, who will watch out for the people you love even when you can't? Do you have a champion? This is our king. What about a father? Did you have a father who gives to you everything that the human heart desperately needs from daddy? Maybe you do, but do you know this? Our God is a great father. He loves the fatherless. And if you let him, he will father you. He will be for you Everything that your heart needs from a father. And when the music stops and the guests go home and it's just you in the silence, what do you find at the bottom of that well? Is there real peace? Is there just apathy? Is that the best you can come up with? Is it coldness, an indifference? Really, who cares if you live or die? If that's all, then you're missing out on something profound. Do you know it's possible that at the bottom of that well of your heart, there could be a peace that is unshakable? That peace that I'm describing is impossible but for Jesus Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. This is our king. And you will not regret the decision to kneel before this king and offer up your life. It is my earnest prayer that we will all do that. Let's pray together. If you are one of those people who has always managed a careful buffer between you and Jesus Christ, maybe somewhere in the back of your mind you've thought to yourself someday I might might take a real close look at all of that not today I've got other stuff going on right now but what if today is a day for you just to try this what if today is a day where you say What if I actually took a look at this person, Jesus Christ? Not at Christianity, not at this religion, not at this church, but at this person. I want to invite you Think about doing that today. God, I want to pray for those who have felt themselves drifting farther and farther from you lately. For some, it's been really hard to catch anything like a Christmas spirit this year. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you somehow, in a very personal way, would revisit the hearts and lives of those people. I don't know how you'll do it, but I pray that you will. I pray like a magnet you will draw those hearts back home to you and i pray for those lord who have never walked with you who are trying very hard to make a way for themselves in this world i pray you will watch out for them protect them even when they don't know it i pray that you would remove the obstacles before them guide them in the path And I ask that you would be truly zealous and relentless in your pursuit of them. I pray that you will win the fight for their hearts. I know that I can't break through, but I know that you can. I know you love them much more than I ever will. So, Lord Jesus, be zealous it we thank you that you are an exceedingly good king we we're not afraid to let you rule over us because you are wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and you are the prince of shalom and we honor you